0: Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Hanberg. I'm a forensic pathologist and medical examiner, and this is Becoming a Medical Examiner. On this podcast, I interview other medical examiners, forensic pathologists, and we just talk about what our experience has been like. And today I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Hansma. So, Patrick, you want to say hi?
1: Hello, I am Dr. Patrick Hansma. I'm a forensic pathologist, assistant professor, and a deputy medical examiner.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, a lot of My people pleasure. are really interested in what we do. But I think that the first thing that I like to get out of the way is, how do you describe what we do?
1: <laughs> yeah, I have to answer that question a lot for uh, juries uh, When you're in court and uh, people are setting up your credentials to qualify you as an expert witness, this is one of the most basic questions we get asked. And so a forensic pathologist is uh, a diagnostician, really. We are physicians who make diagnoses based on doing medical legal autopsies uh, on people whose deaths fall to the jurisdiction of the medical examiner, which is something that is defined uh, by state statute.
0: Okay. Now, if you were, I'll, I'll tell you that right there, I think is very, very clear but I also think that that might even be too advanced for like, when I, I think about when I went to my last uh, sort of family gathering, there's no way that would have fl- flown with my uncle. So what? how would you uh, sort of bring it down to a, a cocktail party type conversation? What's the quickest way you describe what we do?
1: Yeah, and that is the anticipated follow-up question that <laughs> I often get. once Once I've gotten my answer, Onto the record in court. <laughs> <And> <laughs>
0: yeah, just, okay, fair yeah. enough. So I'm not totally off base.
1: You are not, but I like having my own words on the transcript. Sure. So um, we do autopsies, is what we do, uh, which is a uh, diagnostic surgical procedure, as opposed to surgery on a live person where it is intervention. You're trying to treat a disease, remove a tumor. This is not to treat the patient, this is to make diagnoses. And specifically in forensic pathology, because we are both empowered and obligated to do this by law, the law governs our goal, and really that is to determine cause and manner of death. There are plenty of other things that it can accomplish, but the law defines that the medical examiner's goal, at least in my state, is to determine the cause of death and the manner of death.
0: Nice. You know, I've never actually thought about that uh, with surgeons being there sort of to treat disease and we're there to diagnose it. That's a really nice uh, comparison. So thanks. I'm going to put that into my (laughs) into my description now, too. And thank you. So one of the questions that comes up a lot is people want to know, how do you actually become a medical examiner? And I give the same answer every time, which is you do high school, college, med school, residency and fellowship. And then just like that, you're a forensic pathologist. But I know that that's a a pretty brief answer for a very long period of time. So would you mind if we go a little bit into your background personally?
1: Absolutely. Let's do it.
0: So what were you like in high school? Did you know already that you wanted to be a doctor and do all this?
1: Uh, Yeah. You know, I was just an aimless wanderer in high school. Um, Actually, to be honest, junior year in high school was pretty low for me. I had been a really good student for most of my academic career. And then had several years in my teenage years where I just started to ask, what is the point of any of this? Like, I got sick of solving for X. I don't care what X equals, and you keep changing X. So why (laughs) am I doing this? you know? Yeah. And, like, I didn't have a career goal, didn't know what I wanted, and um, I I really, my grades just plummeted. And then I took anatomy and physiology in my junior year, and it was the first class. Yeah, of high school. Yep. Um, My anatomy teacher, his his son actually was he I remember distinctly he said his son was born with four congenital heart abnormalities. And I know now in retrospect, it was almost certainly tetralogy of below. But I remember him saying that introducing like the first lecture of the year. And he said, because of that, I take this very seriously. And I am insisting on teaching it correctly high school students and you're gonna you guys are gonna learn this right. And and boy was he a good teacher. And it was the first class I ever actually cared about. And the next year I thought, well, I've got credit hours I need to fill. I could do an independent study in anatomy and physiology. I just spent all last year learning how the body works. How would I learn how it doesn't work? And I'll do an independent study on the physiology of death. I had no idea that there was a word called pathology. And I had never heard the word autopsy. And it was during that, very early on during my senior year in that process that I encountered that. And I, you know, like the internet was really young. <laughs> you know? yeah. This was this was 1999 slash 2000. Okay, so this so, was still
0: AOL keywords.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, this was... It, Doing searches was not the easiest thing in the world. The amount the amount of information out there was not robust. But there was a pathologist who had his own website. His name was Ed Uffman. I, I never met him. I don't know anything about him. But he had a description of what an autopsy is. I found his website and, and found that. And I thought, holy cow, they pay people to do this. And so that was my declared uh, career goal right that moment. Senior year in high school was forensic pathology. I wanted to do autopsies. I knew it right there and then. I had been pretty. Uh, I was. I was a pretty morbid kid, you know, and did, did the whole Edgar Allan Poe thing and Dante's Inferno and all that in high school. And I was. I was always wandering around in cemeteries and stuff. And I. Uh, I needed an academic focus on it. I, I. I could tell I wasn't like the Goth kids, you know, that were just wearing a bunch of safety pins and like coffin-shaped pendants and stuff. Okay. It wasn't a lifestyle. It was. It was an intellectual fascination with what i now know to be sanitology, you know and i I needed an intellectual outlet for this i was just so fascinated with this transition from life to death and that we can only see this one side of it you know we could never perceive what went on in a body physiologically from an experiential point having done it you know yeah i just i was fascinated by that and any event (laughs) is a tangent, but, um, that, you know, that was how it caught me. And so I went into college specifically to go to medical school specifically to become a forensic pathologist.
0: Interesting. So I have, I have quite a few questions. And I think we started on one of the themes of, I I think what, what will come up quite a bit in this podcast with you, which is you used a word I've never heard before. What did that word mean?
1: Thanatology. Thanatology. You know, Thanos, in the uh, Marvel universe, okay, it's the Greek word for death. So ology being the study, thanatology, the study of death.
0: Thanos, like the guy with the big gold glove?
1: Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> root of his name. He, he is death. So now you understand that character more.
0: Well, it's good.
1: Thanatology or thanato. Um, you've heard of like thanatophoric probably in your medical training somewhere along the way.
0: Probably so, yeah. somewhere along the way, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So that's that's one question. Another is, what kind of high school did you go to that allowed you an independent study and had a? I, I to the best of my recollection, my high school, which was just a public high school, didn't have an anatomy and physiology course, uh, and certainly not one that would have spoken about human anatomy. Did you just go to yeah. a, like a public school?
1: Yeah, I went to the Grand Rapids Public High School System uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, yeah, we. You know, we were not a well-funded institution <laughs> by any means. Wow. We were overcrowded. The school was old and busted, and uh, had a fair bit of gang violence in it. And you know, it wasn't inner city like you think of, like Law and Order is going to portray it on one of their episodes. But it was, it was a little bit rough and tumble. It was a bit scratchy. Interesting. But we, uh, we did have anatomy and physiology. We had physics and chemistry, and there were teachers to teach it. And so we did that.
0: (laughs) So you said that you were a bit of a morbid kid and, and I know that, you know, most people who, who get excited to talk to us about what we do, they tend to have a little bit of that morbid streak where they're interested and fascinated by death. What, what was it about death or about just sort of the afterlife that really fascinated you back when you were, I, I would presume about 17 years old.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Actually, it, Started very early for me all the way back in elementary school I couldn't read things that weren't horror I couldn't watch things that weren't horror I was just bored to tears unless it was somebody dying or something spooky going on like I don't know why
0: that's so interesting Patrick that's the opposite of me I I used to and this is this is real this is not for the sake of the podcast I used to genuinely have to turn off Scooby-Doo because it was too scary (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean that's true. And I mean I've gotten a little bit like now I can watch Scooby Doo. But that's about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because you hear people talk about when the public always asks why autopsies, why forensics and the canned answer that everybody gives, I think just to try and stay safe in you know when giving public answers is that oh it's like a mystery and I get to like solve this puzzle. And it's kind of fun putting it all together, you know, like a puzzle. And I hate it when I hear forensic pathologists give that answer. Now, it may be true for some of them, but I have my doubts. <laughs> Fair enough. You could have stayed home and did Sudoku if you just liked doing puzzles. You picked a career that took four years of med school, four years of residency, a year of fellowship, so you could sift through mega. And you're going to tell me your answer is, oh, you just like – that's so funny you You and I have such
0: opposite viewpoints on this I think that is very literally my answer very literally although I will say I didn't pick the career where I sift through maggots I chose the career where I have to but it's in in uh you know pursuit of the other stuff but on on my interview of myself I talked about how I did emergency medicine first and the premise there is also the undifferentiated patient and so for me you know for anyone's list that that's listening wanting to pursue mysteries is also totally okay but <laughs> as long as you don't work with Dr. Hans my guess
1: it's totally fine i just i've heard that answer so much that i just say you're not giving me the whole story yeah that's because when so you asked about how i got to be a medical examiner just we well, are kind of not doing linear time here but jumping ahead a little bit i was an autopsy assistant all through college And so we can come back to that if you'd like. But um, when I was doing that, my friends would introduce me to other people and say, this is Patrick. He cuts up dead bodies all day long, (laughs) which is how they viewed what I, which is not true, you know, That's of of all the blanket oversimplifications. But that was how multiple people introduced me to other people for years. Yeah. And I kind of keyed in on that and realize the public isn't looking for your politically correct, safeguarded answer that you like puzzles. They actually embrace this. And it makes sense because the horror industry is a multi-billion dollar international industry. People like that. Right. So I actually started just using their answer or their, their description, excuse me. When people ask me, why did you choose forensics and autopsies? I literally just say, I like cutting up dead bodies.
0: <laughs> well, Fair enough. You know, it makes sense. That's
1: what they perceive it to be. So, okay.
0: You said you were an autopsy technician. Is that right?
1: Well, specifically, I was a Diener, actually.
0: Okay. Which
1: is not a politically correct term anymore. People have rebelled against it, but I actually embrace it. Uh, Literally, it said on my badge, you know, for work, Diener. It didn't say autopsy assistant, didn't say autopsy technician. It said Diener, which is the German word for servant. And I knew that at the time. And it's a historic, traditional title for an autopsy assistant.
0: I had no idea that's what that meant.
1: Yep. And a lot of people are confused because they think it means slave. And so they get really offended by it, particularly in in the American South, where many autopsy assistants happen to also be black. And so I can see a sensitivity to it, but there's actually a linguistic confusion there because it does not mean slave. It means servant. And what's really funny a word that nobody seems to complain about in the medical vocabulary that does mean slave is doula.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. Doulas are slaves. It's the Greek word for slave.
0: How interesting. Yeah. I don't know. So I I do want to come back to you being, uh, being a deaner as well as where you went to college and what that was like. But just for a second, why do you know stuff like this? Like how did you get involved in learning about the etymology of all these words and, and, I mean, you seem to know a lot of this really esoteric information.
1: Uh, I don't know. That's just me. Um, I'm really into the history of medicine, which I didn't know for a long time. That came later that I realized I was fascinated with it. Um, the I like languages. Um, I have studied fairly intensively uh, self-study, biblical Hebrew, and dabbled in biblical Aramaic, biblical Greek, ecclesiastical Latin. Um, and I took something that most doctors actually don't get. Many viewers may, or listeners, I should say, may be surprised to hear this. They don't teach medical terminology in medical school. I actually took it at a community college for a summer course when I was an autopsy assistant because I was actually employed in gross pathology. So we did both the autopsies and the surgery, or surgical pathology. And so I had to read the surgery schedule every day to predict what would be sending specimens and what would likely be frozen sections. And I couldn't read any of it, so I took a medical terminology course. I was in there with all the nursing students. The nurses take two semesters of medical terminology, and the physicians take none. So,
0: yeah, I, I really certainly didn't get any terminology in, courses in
1: philology.
0: So, so now you have some. Did, what what did you actually major? Let's talk about your college. So, what did you actually major in?
1: Sure, my major was biomedical science, and I was the five year track. It was mostly um, embryology, comparative vertebrate anatomy. I don't remember what bunch of stuff. So
0: it sounds like, uh, honestly, I'm a little surprised to hear that you you majored in something like that. Only because that seems like such a sort of a straightforward choice. Was that a just a conscious I need to get myself into medical school decision?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was absolutely. This seems to be the thing that is the equivalent to a you know, pre-med major. There's no such thing as a pre-med major. It was just the thing that seems to direct you towards medicine. And the course load seemed to complement very closely um, what it was I wanted to learn in the job I was working at the time, which was all gearing me up to be a pathologist.
0: Were you enjoying the the biomedical sciences degree?
1: For the most part, you know, there, there were parts that, you know, were kind of a yawn. Actually, interestingly, it was largely the non-medical and scientific stuff that I didn't care for. A lot of the humanities, the liberal arts education drove me nuts. Now I'm a little older and wiser and appreciate what I had.
0: When I was in college, I majored in just general biology. And at one point I took, you know, I enjoyed a lot of the biology classes and I also hated a lot of them. And I remember so clearly sitting in class and listening to someone describe the anatomy of a starfish and thinking, 10 years from now, I'm going to be a doctor. But right now, I couldn't possibly hate this more. It was so frustrating. <laughs> and and memorizing these words, which I, I say memorizing, but that implies I might know them still. I absolutely do not. I don't know anything about Starfish Anatomy anymore. But at one point, I took a test on it and did well, or at least well enough to get into medical school. Yeah. That was very frustrating. And then I also, um, I made the mistake of, and I encourage anyone listening, don't make this mistake. I made the mistake of believing that, if I wanted to take some classes that were kind of easy and could pad my GPA, I should take some some like liberal arts liberal arts classes or some music classes. And I remember I took a history of jazz in the United States class online. And to this day, that is the single hardest class I have ever taken. Ever. <laughs> I was I it remember. was brutal. And I remember the I I don't think this is against academic honesty, but at one point I took a test online. And they were, they told us you're going to be responsible for knowing and being able to recognize different jazz musicians based on their music. And I thought, okay, I listen to a lot of jazz. That should be no problem. And uh, I get to the test and I go to press question. Number one, I go to press play and I press play and it goes "Eh," just a single note. And I was like, well, this, this has to be impossible. I spoke to the professor. He reminded me that, uh, it wasn't impossible because he knew who it was. And then, and then I, I managed to work as hard as I could to get a C minus. And uh, yeah, so don't do that. Just stick to science yeah. classes if you want to have it easy.
1: <laughs> brutal.
0: Yeah. So wh- you did college. You did. You said it was a five-year track. Was that standard or you just went slowly? I don't, I don't know what your college was like.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it was a four-year degree, but uh, my undergrad also, in addition to your major every student there had to do what was called a theme and it was you had to do three courses from a list of options of the list of available themes and they were multidisciplinary and so there was a death and dying theme, which I took and so I did a what did I do I did a sociology course on that an archaeology course on that and a physiology course on that and it's you know, just being blunt about academia, it is designed to make it harder for you to graduate in four years. That's why the themes exist. It serves no purpose other than to make it harder for students to graduate in four years, so you get more money, right? That's what the that's what the university is doing. But at any event, I was working three jobs, and so I was taking the minimum course load, and so I did it in five years instead of four, plus that stupid theme, which I'm now very thankful I did. <laughs> uh, it was that was part of my liberal arts thing, about about it at the time.
0: What were the three but, jobs?
1: Yeah I was like I said I was a deaner I did that for six years and I was uh, at various times because they weren't stable a phlebotomist and a surgical pathology assistant in a derm path lab and uh, also worked in microbiology for a little while and so those the, the Deaner position was the stable one, and then the other three were overlapping and alternating. So it was, okay. it was a lot. And I really I screwed up my GPA for a whole year because of that, <laughs> which was organ- the year of organic chemistry and physics, which are like huge for getting into med school, was my next cycle of what am I doing this for? I don't care what X equals. I'm sick of solving for something. And so I just threw myself into my work because I was learning more every day in a surgical pathology lab, grossing surgicals than I did in an entire semester of undergrad, because I was actually, I was training to be a pathologist assistant on the job. It was before there was a You know, you have to do a master's now, but you used to be eligible to get certified from on the job training. And I was in the last wave of people eligible to do that. And that was my backup plan if I didn't get into medical school. Well, I got short sighted for that whole year where I kind of reversed the goals. And I was just diving in hardcore, cutting thousands of surgicals and doing hundreds, if not thousands of frozens in the course of those six years, um, basically came out the other end, a fully trained pathologist assistant, but I did get into medical school. And so I never sat for the exam. So I never really was a certified PA, but I did all the work. And that obviously prepped me for pathology residency. Like you can't even believe.
0: Sure. Wow. That's interesting. So I want to talk a little bit more about your experience in the actual application cycle, but I just want to real quick uh, clarify a couple of things you said because Maybe some people don't know, obviously you do. So um, you said that you were grossing surgicals and what you were referring to is when a surgeon takes out a specimen, whether they do a biopsy or they take they cut out a part of the body, they then take that piece that they took out and they send it up to a surgical pathology lab where someone will evaluate it grossly, which just means looking at it with their with their eyes, not a microscope, and they measure That's it effective. and they take and describe the colors of it and how firm it is and that kind of thing. And they describe all that. And then they divide it up into sections, just cutting it with a scalpel or or some other knife. And then you divide it and make it into microscopic slides. So that's what what grossing a surgical is. And then you also mentioned doing frozens. And what that is, is just during the course of a surgery, if a surgeon sees something that they're either expecting or even if they're not expecting it, they can take a, a little piece of it off and immediately send that up to a pathology lab where someone can freeze the tissue and then take that frozen tissue and create a microscopic slide to look at immediately. So it doesn't have to go through all the typical processing that takes hours and hours and hours so they can get a, at least a preliminary idea of what they're looking at is this, or is this not cancer, that kind of thing. So that's what those two things meant, but just in case, so people don't get uh, lost in, in your story. And I just want to talk a little bit more specifically about the process of applying to medical school. Cause for me, that was the hardest part emotionally. Because yeah. when you're when you're trying to get into medical school, it is the least transparent part of the entire process. And I said that for me, the process of trying to get into medical school is I have to make sure everything goes right and then I'll get into medical school. And then once you're in, then it's, I just have to make sure nothing goes wrong and I'll be a doctor. But it's <laughs> it's the forcing everything to be right. It was so stressful for me. Was it for you?
1: Yeah. So... <laughs> Like I said, I killed my GPA that one year in organic and physics. Those grades were just bad. And so my cumulative really suffered. And I, I had to pull that back up. And so I actually did my MCAT score is also pretty mediocre the first time I took it, which is the medical college admissions test. And so I, I had a mediocre GPA and a mediocre MCAT score, and I did not get in my first time. And... I talked to one of the academic counselors or whatever it was, uh, you know, at my university. And he said, well, what's more important to you being an MD or being a forensic pathologist? How is it different? He said, are you aware of DOs? No. (laughs) He said, it's another avenue of medical school. And on average they take students, that have a slightly lower GPA than the MDs do. I don't know if this is true anymore. This was back in 2003. So back then it was true. I have no idea what happens now. But back then, the average score for getting into a DO school could be a little bit lower than the MD school. And so he said, just keep working to pull your GPA up But cast a broader net and apply both MD and DO, and where you get in is where you get in because you want to be a forensic pathologist regardless of which letters you have. And so I pulled my GPA up for the following. So I was getting uh, like a 3.8 GPA or something, but my cumulative was still too low. Because of that one year that I screwed around in in my academics and didn't focus on them. And so I retook the MCAT, took, you know, brought that up and brought my GPA up, but I got accepted to DO school right down the road uh, at MSU. Uh, So I said, all right, I'm in, that's where I'm going. Um, I had no idea anything about osteopathy and just said, if this gets me there, it gets me there. And that's a long, convoluted story about what it's actually like in osteopathy instead of uh, uh, MD school, and, and is there a difference or isn't there, and I'll side that mostly there isn't, but I don't know that we have time for all of that for this show. But in any event, I got in, and the, the application process was brutal, and your whole life hangs on it, because you either are going to become a doctor or you're not, and if you're not, you're not going to do anything like what you were going to do as a doctor, and specifically a forensic pathologist backup plan was to be a pathologist assistant, which is great and all, but that would never be the autonomy and the expertise level that I wanted, uh, that I would attain as a forensic pathologist.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, all of that makes sense. And because I, I'm not a DO and I'm curious what, (sighs) Obviously, the best advice you can give to a pre-med is do everything perfectly, right? Get a perfect GPA, do the perfect amount of everything, get a perfect MCAT, blah, blah, blah. Most people aren't doing that. And there are people who are going to be currently in your same situation. What's your honest opinion right now? Do you feel like being a DO changed anything negatively for you or you're happy with it or you think it's better?
1: I don't think it's any better. I think that because I am a DO in an MD world. There are no DO pathology residencies. There are no DO um, forensic pathology fellowships. And I took both sets of licensure exams. The DOs have their own licensure exam, the COMLEX. I took that and the USMLE to make my application competitive with all the MD applicants who are going into pathology. And so I have this inside view and at MSU, the MDs and the DOs for the first two years were taking most of the same classes together. Uh, we were all in the same lecture halls for, for most of it. Um, so at any event, I actually don't really see a difference in the physicians that come out the other side. What does happen, though, if you're in a subspecialty like forensic pathology – I have requirements that I have to meet for AOA CME credits, continuing medical education credits. All practicing physicians have to do that to maintain their license. And I have to do a subset of them every year that are osteopathic credits. And the only thing that means is basically they're underwritten by the American Osteopathic Association. And because there's basically no DO pathologist, there's no forensic pathology CME credits to get. So every year I get duck having to sit through some uh meetings like state meetings and things like that that are basically all primary care i basically lose a weekend to sitting there hearing lectures about treating diabetes and family practice offices and things like that to, yeah. to log my credits. you know i wish they'd just take my money you know <laughs> they're like okay this costs me you know a few hundred bucks a year to get all these credits can i just pay you the few hundred bucks and I'll go do something forensic related.
0: I do totally like understand it. that's unfortunately yeah. I, I hear you about it being an additional step for you because of the uh, osteopathic degree. But I also I, I feel like that's just the bane of forensics in general. I um, yes. here I had to take a jurisprudence exam on how I was going to be prescribing medication to my patients and promise to uh. not prescribe medication to any of their family members, blah, blah, blah. And it was just yep. like, uh, I wish they would just remember that we exist sometimes, you know. And you would think they would, given that the government interacts with us directly, unlike the hospital doctors, but such is life. Like, yep, um, it is what it
1: is. Every job has its baggage, you know, so we, we can complain about it here on a podcast and just don't let anybody get turned off by that because it doesn't matter what career you do. There's always going to be kind of stupid baggage and hoops to jump through no matter what it is. Absolutely. It happens to be ours.
0: Absolutely. And that was my experience trying things that were not medicine was I was like, well, if I'm going to have to do all of this garbage and <laughs> I might as well do it toward doing something that I actually want to do with my life, you know? Right. Um, so I, I agree with you from what I understand about DO school. It sounds like it is for the vast majority of your time, identical to MD school. It's all medical school. So what was your experience of medical school? Did you enjoy it?
1: I hated it. Um, I became actually, I learned how to become a student in med school. I did too. I did did too. Like I said, I worked so much and I, I was able to pretty much coast in undergrad, with the exception of the the one year of, of organic and physics that that I let myself slip. Everything else, I was able to maintain a high GPA um, without any effort, really at all, <laughs> to be honest. And so. Getting into med school, I was no longer working. Nobody works the job. Well, not nobody, but essentially nobody works the job in medical school. It's you very
0: just, difficult, eat. just because the time. It's
1: commitment. very difficult. I've only known a couple people that did it, and so you you are a full time student. So suddenly, I had all this free time that I could now become a professional student. And so, med school is actually pretty easy for me, as far as what I actually had to do uh, academically and physically. It was just a mental and emotional drain because it was it was pretty adversarial to my career choice in osteopathy. They Their big focus is to meet the current need for primary care physicians. So at every turn, it was, what kind of family practitioner are you going to be?
0: And I see, <laughs> was, I see.
1: Yeah, I'm going to be the other FP. I'm going into forensic pathology and you just get blank stares. They had no idea what that even was. You know, other physicians are like, that's a, that's, what is that? <laughs>
0: you yeah, you know, I feel like that's still true. And, and it's yeah. so strange because, you know, it's, I, I guess I shouldn't say that because I didn't know that like physical medicine and rehabilitation was an option as a specialty until my uh, medical school's match day. And I found out one of my friends matched into that. And I was like, what? is that? I don't know. And so I, I don't want to be too judgmental here, but um, you know, I obviously am biased and think our field is fantastic. And so I hope everyone learns about it. Um, right. So I, I had a similar experience in medical school where I had to just learn how to be a student because like you in college, I, I had a lot of other projects ongoing and things that I was working on and just sort of, honestly, I prioritized my personal life and just trying to enjoy college a little bit more than I I should have at the beginning of school. And so I did have some making up of my GPA to do. And yep. I found out as I got further in college that for the most part, uh, at least the university I went to was a little bit of, you get a lot of uh, credit for participation. So as long as you show up at the at the lectures and you actually listen, you'll usually get test questions correct. And so I didn't have to right. really, really try until, right. you know, toward the end and on some of the more difficult classes, physics and, and organic chemistry um, and that jazz class, I guess. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and then when I got to medical school, the first two weeks of medical school was my first real experience with something we all know now, which is imposter syndrome. I felt like I tricked somebody and I did yeah. not belong there. Cause I was surrounded by yeah. people that seemingly were understanding every word coming out of this professor's mouth. When I, I was having a hard time following along in the notes and yeah. we were assigned homework, which was not going to be graded, but I'm new in medical school and I just wanted to make sure that I knew what was going on. And I, sitting at home, staring at this, I thought, is it, I, I probably should leave now before I get too deep into this. <laughs> Did, did you have that same feeling at all, or med school wasn't so bad since you had extra time?
1: Uh, you know, I, I did not have that experience, but I know people who did, and it's a common thing. Uh, my actual experience was I was surprised to learn how well prepared I was for it. Um, my degree and the work that I had experienced uh, in, in pathology was shockingly... Uh, relevant, well-aligned with yeah. what I needed to do to transition into becoming both a full-time student and then a physician. Uh, I Every step of the way, I have seen how things actually really prepared me extremely well, surprisingly. Um, and, and that was true even going further back. I worked My first job was working at a grocery store in high school. And when I quit that to go work in anatomic pathology as a deaner, I actually took a pay cut from the grocery store to go do that. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it paid so bad. Um, but any event, um, the, uh, the skill set that I acquired in a grocery store transitioned so smoothly over to working in surgical pathology. I couldn't believe it. And then from that to medical school where so many people were struggling and I had inside track on what the context for all of this was because I was so closely exposed to the practice of medicine in a hospital system that I could see what we were doing in its future context. And that made it really easy for me. And so med school really was not that hard other than the the adversarial philosophy of it. Yeah that they just they couldn't
0: tell tell me what you out. mean when you said You got a lot of skills from the grocery store that transferred over into surgical pathology. What are you talking about?
1: (laughs) Um, There's a lot of customer service that goes on. That's true. That's very true. Because you're interacting with numerous departments and numerous specialties of, of various expertise. You know, we were interacting not only in, in the rest of the lab with the blood bank and microbiology and all of that, but interacting with the surgeons and the clinicians and phone calls from dermatologists. Hey, where are my biopsy results? And so you could put on your customer service hat really easily if you had to do it for a couple of years in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And then the instrument. I had to. So at the end of the day, I, I had no idea how good I had it in college. It was amazing. I worked the best job ever. I did my first autopsy at 18 years old. And I would be in there at 8 o'clock at night, you know, with Blue Oyster Cult blaring out of the radio, cleaning the autopsy room. And I had to take apart the bandsaw and stuff, like for amputated legs that we would cut, surgical specimens. I had to take that apart and clean it. I learned how to dismantle a bandsaw and clean every little part of it in the meat department of a grocery store. I did that for a year. In the <laughs> <meat department.
0: laughs> I mean, honestly, Patrick, I was thinking you wouldn't have a justifiable reason for what you said, but yeah, that all makes <laughs> sense. I just never would have thought of it.
1: You know, and I mean, you get into the personal side of it here, but, uh, I view this all through a theological lens and that, uh, God has his purposes, and he put me where he wanted me and set me up to accomplish uh, what needed to be accomplished or whatever the end goal is here. So there you go.
0: Well, I appreciate it. I want to I wanna hear a little bit about your experience in residency. So based on your story so far, I'm going to guess that you went straight from medical school directly into pathology, right? Sure did. And did you do and- APCP or...
1: Yep, we did. And I did anatomic pathology and clinical pathology, which is what most residencies are. Not everybody does it. That's the four year track. Some people do AP only, just anatomic pathology. And like I always, and for your listeners, like I always tell jurors when I'm explaining my training, Anatomic pathology, we discussed before, you have something removed in surgery, it goes to anatomic pathology to get evaluated, dissected and diagnosed. Whereas clinical pathology, if you have your blood drawn or you pee in a cup and it gets sent to the lab, that's clinical pathology. So that's evaluating like body fluids and stuff. So that's what I tell the jurors. That's what I'm telling you. And (laughs) so I did both. And the first year was anatomic pathology. And I had it so easy because I didn't have to learn how to grow most anatomic pathology residents are not only having to learn the diagnostic side of learning how to uh, make a diagnosis on a microscope slide, learning all that pathology. They have to simultaneously learn how to do autopsies and learn how to grow surgical specimens. So the procedural side of it, they're learning the, the knowledge side and the procedure side. I had the procedure side already down. Oh, right, because you
0: already knew how to gross. I thought you meant that your residency didn't have you gross. And I thought, man, you're about to get your residency a lot of applicants.
1: Nope. I I would be, so like most first year residents are sitting there grossing till like nine o'clock at night. I would be wrapping up at 4.30 in the evening at the latest because I could gross a full day's surgical load in an eight hour shift like any pathologist's assistant and I could do most autopsies for a first year anatomic pathology resident. last about five or six hours. I could do an autopsy in under an hour. And so my autopsy days were the best. Everybody dreaded theirs. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's an hour of work right in the morning. (laughs) And you got seven hours to study.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, but you put in the work for that. It's not like you had a special cheat code. You just spent all the time learning it.
1: Exactly. I just I had a huge leg up on that, and so it's not like I just knew everything. I just knew the procedural part. I still had a ton of pathology to learn. You know, I had to work just as hard as everybody else to learn the diagnostic part. I just had more time to devote to it because I didn't have to devote it to learning how to grow. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So when you were doing when you were in college, you didn't love your major, but it wasn't terrible. And then medical school, you, you had a adversarial uh, experience. And so you also didn't love that. Did you find yourself a little bit more appreciative? Cause you were finally sort of at the place you wanted to be in residency, or were you still not feeling
1: it yet? Uh, mostly I was happy in residency. Um, again, every job comes with its drawbacks, right? And so there's baggage with everything, but I enjoyed pathology immensely from everything that I did Um, didn't love chemical pathology as much as some of the others didn't love heme path as much as some of the others but I still really actually found them fascinating Um, derm path and cytopathology also weren't my favorite but I still found them fascinating I I love pathology in general and so I I pretty much dove into all of it and and was pretty enthusiastic about most of it. I wasn't always enthusiastic to do the job, you know, because it is it's still residency. It's still a grind. Right. But I was, I was enthusiastic to learn what they could teach me. And so, um, and, and I would encourage everybody to take that philosophy who's going down this path. Just all knowledge is power, as I heard one forensic pathologist say recently. And so take that philosophy and dive in and learn it all. Even if you know, you're not going to do it as your chosen subspecialty, dive in and learn it because this is your opportunity to do that. You won't have a future opportunity to learn it.
0: I'm just trying to think of that. That is such good advice, honestly. And that was one thing that I struggled with when I was in residency because, you know, I did, I did anatomic pathology. I did AP only. And I did it specifically because I had transferred from emergency medicine to do forensic pathology. And I was frankly disinterested in surgical pathology. I just just didn't see the application because, you know, honestly, as forensic pathologists, we don't diagnose cancers, at least not in the same way that is currently being done in surgical pathology. And so it really kind of got me down and I I struggled a lot with that. But if I, you know, honestly, when I really enjoyed it the most was occasionally I would get put on a surgical pathology rotation where I'd, be there for four weeks and the first two and a half or three weeks would really be a struggle for me. But by the, by the fourth week, I would usually have convinced myself through exposure and experience that I actually did kind of enjoy it. And then the fourth week was always pretty fun. And I convinced myself one time that, ah, you know what I should do is I should do two of these back to back. And then I'll just the second rotation. I'll be really interested the whole time. That was not the right. That was not the right call. That was too much. I needed, I needed the break in between. But, um, so did you go, did you go directly from residency into forensic pathology or did you do any additional fellowships or anything?
1: Nope. Just straight to forensics. I kicked around the ideas of pediatric pathology and neuropathology to add to it, but decided no, I just, they, they were moderately interesting to me, but not enough to dedicate a year of my life and a year of my wife and kids lives to doing that. I just said nah. Not to do it. I can, I can take an interest in those on my own and kind of hone my own skills in them as I go. So
0: got it. So forensics. so by the time you were leaving residency, you were already married and had children.
1: Yes, we had our first kid during let's see, that would have been second like year of residency.
0: Wow, honestly, that sounds really hard. It's lucky that you had all that yeah. extra time from having learned grossing already, because that's that's a yeah, lot of work.
1: Actually, to be honest, yeah, I think that was part of it was my wife recognized that I had a leg up on this, that I, I still had to devote a lot of time, but not the late night that a lot of my colleagues had to do. I, I spent a lot of my later nights just at home with a textbook in my lap rather than at the grocery station. So, so did, know, that's what we did.
0: Did having a family like that, like that, did that influence where you chose to do your fellowship? Did you stay nearby or did you move across the country?
1: Uh, we moved far enough away that it was pretty inconvenient anyway. Um, actually, my wife was second was pregnant with our second child um, at the end of residency. And so we had our second child during fellowship. Um, but we went from Michigan to Cleveland. So I w- did my fellowship at the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office. So still in the Midwest, it was drivable to see grandparents, you know. So we weren't so far away that they'd never see their grandkids that whole year. You know, yeah. so it was fine.
0: What was that? So what was that fellowship like? Cause I, so far, you know, I, I know my own experience and the other person I've spoken to so far is Dr. Champion and, and we were in fellowship together. So I, I have no knowledge of what it was like doing fellowship there. What was the sort of structure of it?
1: Yeah, that was, it was a good year for me, at least. Um, anybody who has to put up with me for a year has a bad year ahead of that. <laughs> but for me, it was a great year. Um, boy. I had a lot of forensic exposure during med school and residency. I was uh, assisting a neuropathologist during the pre-clerkship years of med school, the first two years cutting brains in the local uh, medical examiner's office. I I can't even tell you how I got connected with this person, but because I had cutting experience, and so I got to cut brains with this guy. And then when my clerkship years came around, and we moved to the metro detroit area i called the three medical examiners offices in that tri county area and asked which ones take med students and the office in detroit did and so i immediately you know set up a an elective and then voluntarily was down there every weekend that i could spare which was most weekends during med school surprisingly my wife was so patient that i was cutting forensic autopsies for Two years, almost every Saturday and Sunday, down in the Detroit office, and so I walked into my forensic pathology fellowship, having done about 200 forensic autopsies, which is about, wow. about a fellowship load of forensic autopsies. Again, Almighty God had my back, and was yeah. preparing me, and so I walked in having done that and saw an office that functioned totally different from Detroit. Cleveland was just an entirely different environment, entirely different organization. And there's, as you know, there's just so many ways to skin this cat. Every, every office is structured differently. And, and so it was really good to see an office that was different from what I knew in forensics before. And I encourage everybody to seek variety in their training. Um, so Cleveland was good. What I didn't know, again, this is a hindsight thing, I had no idea how spoiled I was with their autopsy assistants and their investigators. They have some of the best I have ever seen or worked with in my life. And they were so good. And going to scenes was just spectacular. I hate being in my office. Still do. I don't want to be at a computer. I don't want to be in an office. I want to either be in the autopsy room cutting or out of the scene. And unfortunately, I don't do very many scenes. I've got a couple memorable ones here in Michigan. <laughs> one of them, oh man. But uh, going to scenes with the investigators in Cleveland who were so good at their jobs, man, I learned investigations really well as far as what a forensic fellow is going
0: through. So to you, learn. you had a lot you of know, experience some, with forensic autopsies, but had you ever gone to a scene before?
1: Uh, one. I had. Been to one scene in Detroit, and that it was a suicidal hanging. It wasn't particularly eventful, um, so that that it wasn't even really fair. I could hardly call that going to a scene. I just like okay, went into a house. There was a guy, sure. and like that was it.
0: <laughs> so I, so, you know, I know that yeah. you can't talk too specifically about scenes, and that's fine. Um, but it, it sounds like you've had some scenes that really left an impression on you. Can you at least tell me what, you know, what that experience was like? It sounds like it maybe affected you seeing one or two of these scenes.
1: Yeah. You know, the one that I went to a few years ago, I've only been to a couple scenes in Michigan because we cover huge areas. So the pathologists don't go to scenes because you would never get out of your car, right? You never do an autopsy. You never sign out a case because we'd just be driving hundreds and hundreds of miles constantly. But, uh, I went to one scene because it was between work and home as I was finishing up my day and the investigator was new and she called me about it. And I said, let me ask you this. Do you need a forensic pathologist there? And there was this very pregnant, silent pause. And she just said, well, I've never done one like this. And <clears throat> that turned out to be my first cannibalism case. Wow. And yeah. He, uh,
0: That's a wow, both uh, for it being a cannibalism case and your first, because that implies he, more than one.
1: Yes, yeah, so I've cut two of those now so far and in, in a almost seven-year career since fellowship. Um, so this gentleman was hanging by his feet on a harness on like a pulley system, swung out over a trapdoor over a sand pit, Um, in a professional-grade murder room that this guy had carved out of the side of his cellar. Like, nothing you've ever seen in your life. This is the stuff of movies. And everybody standing there is like, there's no way this is this guy's first victim. There's bodies on this farm. And they ran cadaver dogs and found nothing. in the end, it turns out it probably was his first victim. And he had been prepared for that thing. (laughs) Wow, he was bled into the sand and uh yeah it was he, he had parts cut off that the guy had cooked any and and i actually did not testify in that case it was adjudicated last year and they did not call me to testify on it he's been he's already been sentenced and everything and i actually did not testify and i could not believe it
0: wow that's <laughs> i mean it is surprising you didn't testify but how how did something like that because you know, that's that's the type of thing that maybe couldn't even make it on television that's so brutal. How does that affect you? I mean, I, I honestly am feeling a little bit, as another medical examiner, I'm feeling a little bit taken aback by the story. So I imagine that had an effect on you.
1: Yeah, you know, there, there was a lot to it. The, the nature of that home was... Uh, Boy, how do I describe this? Um, it was sexual and torture in throughout the building, and it was a very godless place. Um, I've mentioned before I have a theological worldview. I am a born again Christian, and looking at this world, I see the affirmation of the doctrine of the total depravity of man—that every one of us is infected with our sin. And it contaminates all that we do. And this is the reprobate mind given totally over to itself. It's the, the biblical worldview that I see in that. And so I'm standing there thinking, this is in every one of us. Wow. So you use this. Grace of God.
0: You use this to sort of, it, it helped reinforce your personal faith then.
1: Uh, not reinforce it, but I see the application of doctrine and theology in it. Um, I don't know, actually, how anybody does forensic pathology as an atheist. I can't figure it out. I just, it just boggles my mind uh, because I look at what we do every day and I see testimony to the truth that I affirm in my religion. Every day I look at this and think, this testifies to what I already believe. And some people would say that's confirmation bias and I don't care. Um, You can say that if you want, because I'll take it. Um, If it's confirmation bias, it's correct confirmation bias in my mind, because I believe it to be true. So I I look at this and I think, what is our world? What are we? Are we cosmic accidents that are randomly evolved? Or are we fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the self-existing God and therefore every one of these lives that is dead on my autopsy table? actually has meaning. And to me, that's the side I'm on.
0: How does this kind of thing, I mean, I'm still a little bit thrown by your story and I know that there's been, you know, just even in my, my experience, there's a lot of, there's a lot of very emotionally trying situations that come up. And I would imagine that at least some of that emotion comes out inventing to your wife. And, and um, I don't know how much you share with your children, but has this, process and you becoming a medical examiner, has that affected them?
1: Yeah, it has, you know, my kids have heard things that others haven't, they don't know how to process it yet. Cause they only get kind of generic stuff. They know I figure out how people died and therefore they kind of have a presence of mind that death is real. You know, they, that probably hit them earlier than it might for other people because they yeah. know conceptually what I do, but they, they don't have any details. And my wife knows I carry that, the baggage, the burden of a forensic pathologist. You know, all my dreams are nightmares. And I, I look at the world around me and think of what I've seen in cases. You know, my, my kids are always like running from the front yard into the garage to get into the house ahead of me when I'm trying to back the car into the garage. And I have autopsied more than one child who was run over by their own parent. You know, so like when they do that, when I see them in the mirror and they're trying to get into the garage and get in the house with their popsicles or whatever before I back into the garage, I put it in park. I don't just hold my foot on the brake. I put it in park. (laughs) So what? (laughs) Because I don't want to run over little things like that, you know, that spill over. You're like, okay, I don't want to be the parent that's in the situation that parent was in, you know? Absolutely.
0: That's one of the questions I get a lot, actually, is how has you know, my seeing this stuff that we see, seeing that honestly, it's a lot of it is pretty dark and, and a lot of it is pretty sad and seeing yeah. it, how does it affect the way I live my life? And, yep. you know, I, I, at least, you know, that example, I, I agree with, I do make small changes that maybe some other people wouldn't make. But for me, I also, it, it's given me a little bit of, um, I, I feel a little bit more entitled to forgive myself for certain you know, vices, I suppose. So I, I think you may know, but I, I ride a motorcycle. Any doctor will tell oh, okay. you that you shouldn't, right? That's, that's obvious. And, and if anyone knows, it should be us. And I know that, but I also forgive myself because I see that some people die even when they don't ride a motorcycle and they're otherwise very safe. So I have that other side where I think the job has helped me um, maintain that reality that no matter what I do, I know the outcome in the end. And so I just do my best, but there are certainly things like, you know, being unwilling to just put your foot on the brake and instead you put the whole car in park. Yeah, I do stuff like that too. So are there nope. any other specific things that that are coming to the top of your mind when you, when I say like, what other specific changes have you made in your
1: life? Not much really. Um, You know, my kids are quite young. I think I probably will use some lessons from forensics to teach them later in life, you know, about drugs and things like that. Um, But right now, there isn't too much application. I've autopsied, it seems like anyway, to me, a high proportion of neglect homicides. They seem to kind of find me. I don't know why. I'm actually lecturing on it through uh, names, webinars coming up later this month, and those pediatric neglect cases are the ones where they stick with me, I think, maybe even more than the violent pediatric death. Um, and those are the days that I come home and hug my kids and remind myself I'm not the worst dad that ever happened. <laughs> I, 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 I do may, understand that. I don't know that. what I'm doing. I may not be a great dad. I have no idea. I may be blowing it at every turn. But I know I'm not the worst one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I, we are at about an hour and I have a couple more questions I want to ask if you still have time. Sure. So, Absolutely. you know, as, uh, as predicted, when we talk about our job, we talk about a lot of stuff that's pretty heavy and it can, you know, a lot of people have some morbid interest, but I also wanted to remind people that we, we do have other interests outside of, uh, you know, this morbid job that we have, And so one of the questions is, if you weren't going to be a medical examiner, if you weren't a forensic pathologist, what would you want to do both in and outside of medicine?
1: Yeah, (laughs) I don't think I could do any other career. This is what I was born to understand. But if I didn't make it into medical school, you know, the pathologist assistant uh, was the backup job and then. Um, I thought about also a PhD in anatomy cause I could at least still be working with cadavers, but I have a big interest in the history of medicine. And so I have a side gig selling rare and antiquarian books. I can plug that. It's patricksrarebooks.com and we specialize, my wife and I, she's co-owner, we specialize in medicine, surgery, theology, and Bibles. And so I sell rare and antiquarian books as my side hustle. Uh, dating back to the 1500s, and I guess I would do that if for some reason pathology dried up or whatever. I couldn't do it anymore. I would probably just try and transition over full-time to uh, selling rare and antique books. I'm also an author. Um, I wrote a novel, The Grave Below. I've published one short story as a limited private press miniature edition, through Booksby Press and I've currently green lighted a second one for them and I'm working on a sequel for my novel. So I would probably just continue to write to supplement my income. And and the antique books are fun because like I said I'm really into theology and so they give me an excuse to study ancient languages. I mentioned Hebrew, Greek, and Latin earlier. So to access some of these older texts, that helps to know other languages. So I, I don't know. I guess I could see potentially if it was going back to school, maybe getting a PhD in biblical Hebrew or Greek or something. But again, I can't imagine living my life not doing autopsies. The history of the autopsy is so fascinating, and I'm writing a book. On, actually, I'm writing two books on that, and uh, every day I get to do this job with a very intimate knowledge of the, the historical context of it. And that really, I encourage anybody in medicine to learn the history of medicine and specifically their field, because it's really fun to do a procedure and think about what this procedure was 200 years earlier. I say, I am really interested in that. And I it puts an interesting spin on my day when I pause to think about what was the autopsy that Rudolf Fehu was doing in the 1880s or whatever um, yeah that I can go on and on and on Well,
0: oh, that's that's awesome <laughs> that's I got a I don't have any of the actually old books I do have a reproduction of a early uh, post-mortem examination in in humans I think it's what it's called and it's just a reproduction but it looks old and it looks nice on my shelf and I've opened it a few times and I do remember that when I looked um, just sort of at random I found a description of how, at least at some point, for whatever reason, they described how to do a complete autopsy without an incision uh, in the abdomen, but instead to do the entire autopsy through the anus. And I have no idea what the purpose of that was.
1: um, Yep. So that's called autopsy per vaginum or per rectum. And it was so common, it made it into the textbooks, like you noted. And the purpose was for doing illegal autopsies. When you couldn't get family consent, you could, if there was still something you desperately wanted to see, you could uh, make an incision there, put your arm up all the way into the body, grab what it was you were after, and then close up that incision behind the scrotum or, or between the vagina and rectum, and no one would be the wiser. It was so common, it made it into the textbook.
0: Wow. Well, for anyone listening... It is not happening today. We do not do that. We do not do illegal autopsies either. Uh, That is wild. I had no idea that's why it was, and that somehow makes it more disturbing. So,
1: yep. I know one guy who, he didn't do it illegally, but I know one forensic pathologist who has done one of those autopsies in a case where they could not get consent for the full dissection because of religious reasons, but they were willing to let them make a small incision to examine one thing and so that was what he did he made an incision uh into the perineum and reached up and got the one thing that he was after and he's probably the first person in at least 80 years to do that
0: that is crazy <laughs> and i'm actually
1: kind of jealous i, because I actually do I do historic autopsy methods occasionally, Occasionally occasional bust out old dissection techniques to try them and see what they were up to. And uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of jealous that he got to do that.
0: (laughs) Well, I've never heard of someone actually doing that, man, that's crazy. And it's interesting that they were able to get consent for that, but not for a full autopsy, but that's not for me to decide, (laughs) but that's interesting. I, I would love to hear sometime about some of these other historical autopsy techniques, but Um, I do think we got to shut this this podcast down. I do like to end with the question, can you tell me about a time in your life when you laughed really hard? It doesn't have to be about medicine and it doesn't have to be funny to me. I just want to hear about a time that you laughed really hard.
1: That's probably the hardest question I've ever been asked. Um, (laughs) I don't know that I can think of a single time, but I think the thing that makes me laugh the most are my kids. I have very, very bright kids and they're at that great age where they don't really have a filter and they're not inhibited by social norms or expectations. (laughs) So the stuff they throw at you out of left field that you never would have predicted I probably laugh the hardest at what my kids are doing, but I can't think of an example.
0: That's all right. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for being part of the podcast. I love it. That was a great answer. And so sorry to throw such a a curveball at you at the end. Um, Would you mind, can you plug your your website and your books again?
1: (laughs) No problem at all. Yeah, you can find me at com. Again, we specialize in medicine, surgery, theology, and Bibles going all the way back to the 1500s. And we also do have other genres as, as well, but not as much. And then my novel is called The Grave Below, and I'm working on the sequel.
0: Awesome. And then uh, where are you at on social media?
1: You can find me on TikTok, at Forensic Pathologist. You can find me on Instagram. I have two accounts, Patrick's Rare Books. It's Patrick's underscore Rare Books. And also the, at the grave below on Instagram. And then I'm also on Twitter as uh, Patrick's Books. I think it is.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for telling everyone what it was like for you becoming a medical examiner. And if anyone wants to get any more information on forensic pathology, I recommend checking out reddit.com slash r slash forensic pathology. And if you're interested in forensics, but you don't necessarily want to be a forensic pathologist, you can always go to r slash forensics. There's a lot of forensic professionals there who'd be happy to help and explain what they do. Otherwise, uh, you can see me on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Handberg. And while we still have it, I'm on tiktok uh, at forensic md and if you're interested please check out the name.org that's the national association of medical examiners website the name.org it is geared a little bit more towards people who are already in forensic pathology but there's a lot of good education there there's a lot of outreach and if you're looking to hire a personal or um sorry a private medical examiner there's a way to do that on the website as well and thanks again dr hansma and uh we'll see you next time on becoming a medical examiner